Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Have you watched the, I'm not going to call it a documentary. I know it's being called a documentary, but the show on Netflix about uh, Harry and Meghan. Have you, have you spent any time on this one? A lot of people have. Apparently it's, uh, it's doing very well for Netflix. So say the numbers. And we don't, we don't get to know exactly in the same way that we would know for other TV shows. It's not, it's not registered the same way, but apparently Netflix is saying it's doing very, very well. I don't know if you're watching any of this one. It is, um, it's not doing well as far as reviews. Let's put it that, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. The uh, critics have given it a 45% positive rating and the average audience score 11%. So the audience, however, this, I mean, I don't know if people are just blasting their review, blasting Rotten Tomatoes and giving it a bad rating to knock it down or whatever. But if this is any indication, people are not terribly impressed. But I'll tell you, I, I, I am, I am so, as, as this has been going on, I have not watched it, honestly, uh, have not had time, nor with the limited time that I have, am I inclined to watch what essentially appears to be a video press release endorsed by Netflix. And I'm not, I, look, I'm not, I'm neither, as I've said this before, I'm neither a monarchist nor an anti-monarchist. I, I don't, I don't live and die with the monarchy, nor do I sit here and go, oh man, we got to get rid of the monarchy. It's just, you know, I, I, whatever. I mean, it's fine. It's never done me any damage. It's never done anything wrong or whatever to me. I, if it's, if it's, if it's there, fine. If it's not there, okay. But I am just, I am, I am amazed as I watch this and, and I'm trying, I, I recognize, and maybe, maybe you feel the same way, maybe you don't. I recognize that my life and those who have been in the public eye like this are not the same. I get that. I'm not trying to compare the world I live in with the world the royals live in by any stretch. At the same time, I just find it so unbelievably difficult to wrap my head around the idea that this is family and the idea that you would be involved in something that seems to have the sole express purpose of damaging your family. I, I don't understand that. I know not every family gets along. I know not everyone maybe feels the same way about their family that I do or that maybe you do, but I just, I, I can't fathom the concept of somebody who has this ability to have this kind of platform who has benefited. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. You know, we keep hearing that Harry is saying, well, this was, you know, dangerous and I was scared for my wife and all that. Harry has, has absolutely unquestionably benefited from the lavish, luxurious lifestyle. Even the place he lives in now in California, $15 million home. You're telling me that if he was just Harry Jones, who had grown up in the East end of London to average parents, you're telling me that the likelihood that he was going to be living in California in a $15 million home and, and, and having a hundred million dollar Netflix contract, you're telling me that that was going to happen. It's, 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 it's the height of 
ridiculousness that somehow they're pretending that the life that the place that he has come from, this horrible place that we have to tear down, hasn't benefited me, as in him, immensely. I just, I, I just, I'm, I'm entirely baffled by this. I'm entirely baffled by this. How, how do you, if you don't want to support the family, you know what? There are ways to go and live a normal life, but it seems like there's an attempt here to take the good stuff and also then stay on the outside and snipe. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Nathan Tidridge is a teacher at Waterdown District High School. He's written many, many books about the monarchy. Uh, joins us now. Nathan, how are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? I am good, thank you. We were just talking about this. I don't I don't recall, first of all, I, I, you know, trying to compare it to our lives, I don't quite understand the thought process behind trying to damage your own family. But I, I don't recall with the royal family at any point in the history that I ever studied another member of the royal family who was trying seemingly so hard to tear it down. Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, I think you'd almost have to go back to to King Edward VIII. And I mean, that's we're talking 1936 back to then. It it is pretty extraordinary. But did he try? I don't. I don't recall. He abdicated. He. He. You know. He yep. did damage to it. But did he spend the rest of his life trying to undermine the crown and trying to ruin everything? Uh, not really. I mean, at first, a, a little bit during the Second World War, but then he was kind of put into his place, and um, yeah, for the rest of his life, kind of uh, trying to get uh, get back in almost, and and, and kind of reconcile in some way, uh, which we may see in this situation as well. Well, I, I, it's, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm, I question how I was reading some of the British papers the other day, and um, I think yesterday actually, and a number of them, one of them, which I, I couldn't imagine, they said, look, don't, you, Harry and Meghan better not think of coming over for King Charles' coronation, because if they do, those who are lining the streets will boo them audibly, which would be the biggest shot ever, I guess, in the royal family, to have someone booing members of the royal family. Yeah, and I mean, especially during something like a coronation, because that is really the, uh, that's the height of uh, of celebration. I mean, maybe apart from a wedding, but uh, this is a, that's a time for celebration and, uh, and joining in and unity. And uh, yeah, it would be, it would be quite something uh, to have something like that happen, which it looks like that could be the case. Nathan, ultimately, do you think that this kind of thing, in, in the States, it may be a very different story because they don't have the same history. The royal family doesn't mean the same. It's more of just like a celebrity thing. But in Britain, will this kind of thing enhance the monarchy because people are now going to rally around it and protect it? Or is it got the possibility, that, that is there a risk that what happens here really does damage it? Um, that's a good question. I think it's going to be it's it's going to be a case of wait and see. I mean, for those who don't like the crown, they're going to jump on this and see it as you know another reason that it should be dispensed with. For those that are supportive of it, they're going to you yeah, like you said, use this as a rallying point to um, uh, to support it and and kind of point out that. You know what Meghan and uh, and Harry seemingly don't understand is this is about service and not celebrity. 
Um, and so it kind of it kind of reinforces that that difference between the two. But uh, how they're going to be viewed in history, I think, has yet to be seen. I think their their big error that they've made really is by attacking the Queen's legacy, which seems to be what they're doing right now. Uh, and I don't think people were were ready for that. Well, no, and, and like, uh, look, I don't want to speak for your family. I can speak for my family, and people can decide whether this happens with them or not, too. But you can have arguments with people in your family, and you can even maybe say things to people in your family that is pretty blunt, and we'll live with that. But the moment someone outside the family starts taking shots at our family, we will put the shield up and we will defend them. And that's what I wonder about this is that, you know, yeah, we in Britain might want to take a few shots at the royal family. But when it starts to be Meghan Markle and it starts to be criticism coming from the States, we are going to rise up and we're going to say, no, we stand for them. Yeah, and it looks like certainly with the newspapers, uh, that seems to be what they're doing. Um, and uh, I think we'll really see when the next three episodes, when they kind of come out, and then we head towards the the coronation, um, what's going to be the reaction of of, of people on the streets. But you're right. I I think definitely the newspapers are taking that point of view. So do you then look at this as a dangerous time for the monarchy, Or, or is it just another one of many things that we've seen over the years? Yeah, I mean, when you look at it in the grand scope of history, this is just another kind of um, uh, moment in the history of the crown. And and yeah, they, it's a family, and so these sorts of things do happen. I mean, if we look at the history of it, there's some there's been some pretty wild rifts within the family itself. Um, I think the difference here is we're dealing with really a kind of an international monarchy now. It's it, and, and in this social media world, um, it just amplifies everything. I, I am waiting. I am waiting, and I'm quite frankly expecting that there comes a point. It would seem to me that Meghan Markle and Harry run out of ammunition and in their attempt to continue to try and stay relevant and continue to try and say stuff, there comes a point when they jump the shark, to use the old TV phrase, and they become entirely irrelevant if they haven't done all the damage prior to then. I've been reading a lot of the kind of the criticism and the criticism is it just seems to be kind of the, this same story that's being retold over and over again. And eventually, yeah, people, people get tired of that. And so really with this Netflix series, this is kind of the, the, that one last kind of telling of this story. And then the question becomes, well, what happens next? Oh, wait, doesn't he have a book, though, coming out in a couple of weeks that'll tell that's the right. story again? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, you know, we, we, the story's been told every which way. Now people are going to say, you know, okay, we've got the story. Uh, now, now what are you going to do? What's going, what happens from this point on? That is Nathan Tidridge. Uh, listen, we always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for taking a few minutes. And no problem. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're not even at Christmas yet. It has been a very interesting, very busy time for the Blue Jays all of a sudden. we got McGriff going into the Hall of Fame. You have Don Mattingly being introduced as the Blue Jays bench coach, which is 
kind of cool, I suppose, unless you grew up hating the Yankees, and then you're going to have to work your way around that one. Um, Kevin Kiermeyer coming here is an outfielder. You've got uh, yesterday Chris Bassett signing, uh, Eric Swanson in a trade, Teoscar Hernandez out, Ross Stripling today signing with the San Francisco Giants. There's some changes. Uh, not changing. Mike Wilner, he's a columnist with the Toronto Star. He is the guy behind Deep Left Field Podcast, joins us now. Mike, how are you? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. And you can hear Fred McGriff singing OK Blue Jays on the latest episode of Deep Left Field, so can, check that out. Can you? All right, excellent. Well, and did he get all the words right? I mean, how do you get them wrong, right? I mean, I mean, he only... <laughs> it was only OK Blue Jays, let's play ball. So it's tough to mess up. It is tough to mess that up. All right, so uh, leaving aside the Don Mattingly thing, which is kind of cool, but again, kind of, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that later, and the Fred McGriff thing, with all the other changes, are the Blue Jays today a better team, a worse team, or a neutral team to where they were when things finished up? I think they're about the same, a little worse than losing Teoscar Hernandez, but I'm confident that they'll replace that uh, offensive output. I mean, it's it's very, you know, it's it's really, really um, premature to to try to say what how they look relative to last year when you still have three and a half months of off season to go. It's uh, every off season is a work in progress, and um, you know, trading Teoscar Hernandez freed up the money for them to sign Chris Bassett, but it does leave a hole in the the offense. But they've um, Man, have they improved the defense by by bringing in Kevin Kiermaier. So uh, so for me, I'm just waiting to see what happens the rest of the way. I don't think they're by any means done yet. If Kiermaier can stay healthy, and last year he wasn't, uh, this, I assume, moves George Springer to right field? I don't think you can bring in Kevin Kiermaier and say he's going to play center field every day. I think that Springer will still be the primary center fielder, and uh, Kiermaier is in to sort of replace Rymel Tapia and Jackie Bradley Jr. and Bradley Zimmer. Um, he, he takes care of all three of those guys in one. I, I do wonder, as the season progresses, if Kiermaier stays healthy, how difficult it's going to be for the Jays to not use him often. Um but, I mean, he hasn't hit in years, and as much as a run prevented is equal to a run created, um, I think you probably need more offense from one of your uh, three starting outfielders mm. than you're going to get from Kiermaier. So I, I, I don't expect him to be a full-time player. Have you been, uh, Mike, as, as this offseason, now we go through this every time, and I suppose this question gets very tired, and I, and I acknowledge that, but... Do you get caught off guard anymore in off-seasons when we see what guys are getting signed for? Does it ever surprise you anymore when you see the numbers? Sometimes, sure, but I think it's great. Um, You know, I'm all for these guys making as much money as they possibly can because clearly it's out there, and I would much rather have it go to the players than go to the owners' pockets. So, you know, it's it's outstanding, and um, the market... What has been a lot hotter this year, especially for starting pitchers, than anybody thought it could be. No one expected Taiwan Walker to get the kind of money uh, that he got. Um, even you know the the um, the projections for Ross Stripling were that he was going to get like two years and nineteen million, 
and he got two and 25 with an opt-out after the first year. So I, I think it's fantastic. It does mean that the Blue Jays are nudging up against the um, competitive balance tax threshold, and, and it might make them shy about spending more money, and it might mean that a guy like Michael Conforto and Michael Brantley is off the table now, but um, I'm all for these guys making as much money as they can. Well, the other thing that has that I've been wondering about as all these players have been signing, and again, they have been you know they have been big contracts. Is the Jays very soon are going to have to start making some decisions on their guys who are going to be wanting some big, 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 big dollars like Vlad Guerrero Jr. I suppose there are some contracts that will be expiring, but. It, it, it does complicate things now when you see the amount of money and you see who's coming up for a contract renewal. It does. It does. There's no getting around that. There are you know guys on this team who make a lot of money, and there are guys on this team who don't make a lot of money yet but are going to make a lot of money soon, and, uh, and decisions are going to have to be made soon enough. I don't, I'm not concerned about it for 2023 um, and not really that concerned for 2024. So for me, you know, you figure it out when you have to figure it out. Um, but, but yeah, if they, if they want to stay under the competitive balance tax, then in a, in a year or two, they're going to have to start making some pretty hard decisions. Yeah, and, and you wonder how much then this year, not just for winning, uh, everyone wants the team to win, everyone around here wants them to win, but you wonder how much... I mean, I don't. I don't think for a second. Tell me if you disagree. I don't think for a second Vlad Guerrero is playing for his contract or his life in Toronto right now because I think there's no chance that he's not here if he's willing to sign. I'm not as sure about Bo Bichette that if that he is a guarantee, locked in, absolutely will be here in three years kind of guy. He might be more playing for his spot in Toronto or a big deal. I don't think he's playing for his spot in Toronto by any means. And, you know, a lot of people are very down on Bo Bichette. And honestly, I'm not sure why. He's not the greatest defensive shortstop in the world, but the offense more than makes up for whatever shortcomings he might have as a shortstop. And, and you know, his last six weeks of the season last year were otherworldly, and they did prop his numbers up for sure. But up until that point when people were complaining that he wasn't hitting, he was still producing at an above-average level uh, offensively in the major leagues, and that's for a shortstop. And so, sorry, and I don't mean, Mike, just to be clear, I don't mean that he's playing for his job in Toronto, that they're going to bench him or move him somewhere else. What I mean is okay. if he wants one of those seven, eight-year deals that it's worth 250 or 300 mil, whatever it is, that's the, what I'm talking about, that his life in Toronto yeah, has... still still three years down the road, right? right? I mean... These guys aren't knocking on the door of free agency anytime soon. So if for, for Bo, for Vlad, um, for Alec Manoa, who's a year behind the other two for free agency, uh, it's just about continuing to build on what they've already established in their careers. And, you know, hitting the market like they're going to um, at 27 and 28, they're going to make a crap load of money <laughs> yeah. pretty much no matter what. Um, but if, if they just continue on the, the, the course that they're, they've been on so far in their major league careers, they're going to sign 
massive, massive, massive deals in three years. Yeah, I don't know exactly how much is involved in a crap load, but uh, I think they'll get it, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little more than a bucket load. There you go. Uh, Mike Wilner, you can listen to him on the Deep Left Field podcast. You can hear Fred McGriff singing, which is, you know, I suppose always a good thing. Maybe we'll get him on here and sing, or, or someone else. Well, Mike, maybe next time Mike will have you sing. If you want to drop in and do that, uh, appreciate your time. I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time. All right, thanks. That is Mike Wilner. You can read him in the Star. Yeah, go look up the Deep Left Field podcast. Always, uh, always enjoy talking with Mike. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a documentary series that is coming out in January on Paramount Plus. Now, I don't know how many of you subscribe to Paramount Plus. Uh, I don't know how many of you subscribe to Paramount Plus. I don't know how many of you are going to be able to watch this, but the the idea behind this, I love this. We have had documentaries about hip hop, about rock music, about heavy metal, about all these different things. Well, it's called the documentary that's coming out is called Sometimes When We Touch. It's the the name if you're familiar with Dan Hill, and around here you probably are, Dan Hill, Canadian singer. Um that was one of his big songs, Sometimes When We Touch. It is, it is. I don't think I'm being insulting when I say it is among the lightest fare you can possibly imagine. It is, it is the kind of music you listen to um, when you are trying to get ready for bed or when you just need to chill. This is, this is not going to get your heart rate going. This is, this is, this is soft rock. Well, this is a documentary series about soft rock. Let me bring in Eric Alper. He is a music writer. He's a music publicist. He, he writes about it. He talks about it. He works in the industry. Eric, is, is soft rock the absolutely least respected genre that exists in the music spectrum? Other than my own music um, <laughs> being performed for just the audience of, of zero? Uh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, and it always was. It, it didn't even take a period of nostalgia for people to just hate on the Bee Gees and the schmaltzy songs of Elton John or Carly Simon and Carol King and Cat Stevens and James Taylor. The only problem was is that uh, more people loved those artists than hated them. Um, it seems like the people who didn't like it were, you know, either rock music critics or rock radio, you know, station programmers. But there were millions of people across North America that bought all of their albums. And it was a, a, a genre and a format that still continues to this day. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty underrated. Bought all their albums, but did any of those people admit to buying the albums? That's kind of the point of this. I think this is one of those genres that you, you probably know the songs. Most of these songs that we're talking about, you could probably know, but I don't know how many people are saying, oh, I have all of, I have all of Captain and Tennille's albums. Right, right, or or yeah, yeah, or like I've got even the the studio recordings of Bread, other than just the greatest <laughs> right. hits. I just um, finished downloading all of the Carpenters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, um, they've made a bit but, of a comeback in yeah, their own way. Yeah, and it, it it all depends, right? Like Chicago and the Eagles and, and Elton John were more rock oriented, but in the mid nineteen seventies, they were absolutely associated with the easy listening. Um, uh, you know, easy rock formats of, of radio stations. Um, the Carpenters started to become really popular again um, in the early 1990s when people like Kurt Cobain and of Nirvana 
Sonic Youth and Soundgarden bowed at the at, at the stage of uh, of that group, um, and so it it kind of depends on who you were, you know, and and what you saw of it. Um, you know, Neil Young's Heart of Gold ended up being number one on the Billboard Hot 100, not necessarily always because of the rock station that played it, but it was because of the easy rock, um, soft rock radio formats that helped bring the music into a whole new group of people who would normally not even listen to Neil Young. But but Neil Young, I don't know that he fall, even the song might, I don't know that you could ever say that Neil Young would fall into that category because then you turn around and he's got a million different things that he's just grinding yeah, away sure. at. But again, like the Carpenters, I, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen the Carpenters all of a sudden pick up a couple electric guitars and just jam it out with one of these things, but never have that. You know exactly what you're getting. And and as I was looking at this list of just the ones that some of the ones that they talk about in this, Air Supply, yeah. Kenny Loggins, although I don't know that Kenny Loggins really I would put there, but Michael McDonald, um, Captain and Tennille, I'm thinking this seems like it's very white. And then I realized, but wait a second, they're naming this documentary after a song by Dan Hill. So maybe I'm over-whitening it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the other artists that could have easily been included, like Alan Parsons Project or Eric Carmen, um, yeah. Hodo, you know, Jefferson Starship, it, 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 it really brings out the, um, a, a racial divide which was probably on purpose more, um, more than I think people realize because, you know, when you had psychedelic rock and you had R&B and Motown in the early 1970s, suddenly this, this, you know, this style of music comes along that fits a niche and a format that radio loves to position itself so they can go after a very specific audience with advertising. And that's where the all soft rock format kind of comes in when it started in like late 1970s in New York and LA. All right. Explain something to me about this because I mean, clearly, uh, and again, we were halfway joking about it, but it's not a complete joke. No one, I don't think has ever said, you know, who was really cool? The Carpenters, you know, who was like so hip was Captain and Tennille just, you know, or other ones. Why does it, it, it does seem to matter to us that people think that we, that the music we listen to is kind of, is kind of cool. Otherwise we would all back in the seventies have said, I love the Bee Gees or I love ABBA. And, and you know, most people didn't, even though they probably listened to the music and when yeah, nobody see, was watching. I, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, you know, what you just described was Thursday nights on ABC Back in the 70s, right? You had the Osmonds having their yep. own show. The Osmonds, there's another one, Cher, yeah. You know, the Carpenters. Um, all of those artists, they were massive. And in a world of three television channels back then, not including, you know, the, the CBC and, and ZTV and so forth in Canada, but those specifically hit people who just didn't care if they were cool or not. It, it was people in Ohio, Colorado, um, Arkansas. It was people who, who just didn't, um, who, who weren't reading Rolling Stone for, to find out about the gossip of, 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 you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or, or whoever. It was people who bought the Peter Frampton album and they bought 30 million of them. 
um, and the, the with, uh, from the live album, or you know Rupert Holmes, who end up selling a couple of million copies Pina of Colada. the Pina Colada yep. song. You know, so there there's absolutely that you know that cool hipness of the '70s, and you can say, well, you know, they weren't the Sex Pistols or they weren't the Clash, but in most cases, people aren't really following what's cool anyway. People just tend to want to just watch what they wanted and be entertained. And in the '70s. Wow, there was a lot of entertaining and variety shows to be had back then. I probably, I don't know that I'm really technically supposed to ever talk about other radio stations on this radio station. However, (laughs) um, probably 10 or 15 years ago, there was a station that started up. It's not around anymore. And they, uh, I, I just remember at the one time, they, their, their shtick was, we don't have any DJs. It was just music. And what they did was every once in a while, it was all rock, but every once in a while they would throw in a completely unexpected song that I don't think anyone would have ever anticipated was going to be on that station. I remember one time I was listening and it was a bunch of rock songs. And then all of a sudden it was, um, uh, one of the songs from Greece, um, right. or, or one of the songs from what we're talking about here. And, you know, I, I, I did think as, as I was thinking about that today, because they, they, I'm thinking, where do I hear these? I bet you that every single person who was listening to that station for, you know, for heavier stuff, when those songs came on, didn't turn the channel because secretly they knew the songs and they liked the songs, even though, again, they may not want to admit it to their f- cooler friends. I bet you that secretly almost everybody knew and liked those tunes. I'll go even. I'll go even further. The there is a um, uh, there's a music streaming service that is satellite, and one of the most popular channels on there is not the rock channel. It's the channel of Christopher Cross, Gino Vinali, another one, yeah. Air Supply, Christopher right? Cross, and, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, it's it's that because not only do we not not only have we never forgotten those songs. But it keeps you, and you said at the top of the of, of the of the segment, and I think it's so undervalued. It keeps you calm. It it doesn't kind of get your emotions up and down when you're sitting in traffic and you're driving in traffic and trying to figure out how to get somewhere 15 minutes before you were supposed to get there. This music is kind of designed just to breeze you through the day, be non, you know, non-conformative, non-combative, and there's absolutely a lot of people who love this music. And Unquestionably. It's a little bit ironic now, you know, that some of it is still, you know, look, I've always loved Richard Marx. I think Richard Marx is probably even more popular now in terms of his status than he ever was back then when he was only like rock. Yeah, and you know, it, it, so as we're talking about this, I was reading a piece in the Globe and Mail in the last few days, and it was... You know, if you're looking for a Christmas gift of something for someone who likes music in your life, uh, what can you find? One of them was a book called Totally Wired, The Rise and Fall of the Music Press. Oh, I just did an interview with, with Paul. Okay, uh, with Paul Gorman, yeah, who wrote Paul this. Paul Gorman, yeah. And it's I, a fascinating read. Yeah. Well, and, and it seems to me, this is a kind of what we're talking about, is that once upon a time the music press dictated what was cool. And so you kind of didn't, you didn't really want to necessarily admit it because we knew what was cool and what wasn't. And now the fact that critics don't have the same 
pull that they once did or the same weight they once did because we're all now our own critics probably has allowed this stuff to come back and we don't care what anyone thinks now. Oh, and that music press of Melody Maker and NME and Mojo and Q Magazine and Rolling Stone despised everybody of what we've talked about. Oh, of course. Every single person, I mean, they defined themselves based on their hatred for those artists, kind of like how, you know, you and I talk about, um, you know, in the past about, you know, the absolute hate that a band like Nickelback gets 20 years from now, we're, we're, you know, our kids are going to be on the radio talking about, well, why were they, you know, they were so hated. And, you know, my kids are probably going to say, well, I don't know, man, they sold 75 million copies. So it it just seems like it's certainly, um, it's certainly easier to see a divide of the really cool kids um, but as you get older, you realize that, you know, maybe Gino Vanelli's songs were no further away from Here, There, Everywhere by the Beatles or Yesterday by the Beatles. What makes that song so cool than the one that you love, like by Air Supply? Is it the singer? Is it the style, the mood? Because there's not that, you know, there's not that far apart from, you know, the love songs that the Beatles wrote to Richard Marks or Extreme or Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. No, and, and all those things, though, the, all those groups you just mentioned, the thing they had, and you mentioned Neil Young before, the thing they had to balance it out was you could, they could always say, oh, we don't just do this. We right, don't just yeah. do this. But yet you mentioned also earlier Christopher Cross. I forgot about Christopher Cross. I always thought that was, you know, uh, one of those one of those singers that just got so every song to me sounded kind of the same of his because I think they I don't, I don't well I don't know if I've heard all of his songs honestly but they kind of are all the same but that's a guy who just fits into that category there isn't yeah. I don't think there's a Christopher Cross heavy metal album out there and uh, and always did like right from the get-go because you could say you know Hollow Notes never really kind of fit into that but now they do you know, Hall & Oates were absolutely straight-ahead pop music and having hits for it. Christopher Cross and Lionel Richie were always in that kind of vein of, of, of like, just, they were nice, you know? Um, and then with Christopher Cross, you know, he's still, he's still out there on the road playing to 1,800 to 2,000 people a night. Um, and he's got that diehard band. I mean, Gino Vanelli too. When he gets out and and wants to tour, Air Supply. Oh, yeah, Air Supply. You know, in the, minutes. Christopher Cross. Even as you're saying his name, I've got that song "Sailing" just going yeah. on in the back of my head. Now I'm not going to be able to not. You know, come sail away by sticks, different version than sailing by Christopher Cross. And I, I will be stuck with that song now <laughs> for the rest of the night and maybe for the rest of the week. But um, Or that SCTV skit of, uh, of Rick Moranis uh, doing Christopher Cross and, then, and, and Michael McDonald um, oh. doing Ride Like the Wind. Like that was so, when you're made fun of on a comedy show, that's when you know that you've made it. But you become, you just become too popular and people start kind of not liking you for it. Well, and the other thing about all this that we're all talking about is there is a report out by the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, the IFPI. I've never heard of this before, but okay, it's, uh, they're out there. Um, People are listening to more music today, they say, than at any other time in history. The average person is spending 20.1 hours a week listening to music. Now I have to assume when they come up with a number like this, they are either talking to music fans who are 
listening to more, or they're even talking about, you know, we have our phones with us all the time now. We have all that maybe stuff in the background that's playing. I can't believe we're sitting in intentionally listening to 20.1 hours of music. (laughs) But the fact is the, with all what we're talking about, all these bands that are often the ones that are in the background that would probably account for some of these 20.1 hours. Those are the ones that are into, you couldn't possibly listen to Judas Priest that work all day and get anything done. (laughs) It has to be this stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and it's really good to know personally that I'm above average in something, because um, <laughs> 20 hours is like a day. It's your um, first day, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, the, the IFPI is kind of like our version of Keras. They're, they're the, the music industry organization that uh, in, in the UK that kind of oversees all of the record labels and, and helps kind of advocate on their behalf. So that number is always going to be good and better year after year to show the importance and, and the rights of the artists are important. Um, and it's not just the five minutes that most people may listen to the radio when they're in the car. It's the music that you listen to working out. It's the music that is on in the background or, you know, being put on hold. Um, most people actually, you know, if you're a teenager, you're probably checking out TikTok videos with music in it or Instagram or Twitch. So music absolutely is a big part of it. And it kind of drowns out that silence moment where where people don't like it but um but yeah that's what happens when you have 120 million songs at people's fingertips they're going to listen to a lot more music and you just even you saying about when you're on hold um i I, just as we're talking about this as we're going through this i'm realizing you know i bet you we could do a test here and i bet you the person who says i am only into hip-hop i only listen to i only or i only listen to country or whatever else i bet if you played these songs people would be humming along unconsciously even because even if you have even if you went above and beyond to try and avoid a lot of these soft rock classics you could not get through a week without hearing some of them it's impossible no and it you know when the time comes for people to have a chip in their head and for everybody else <laughs> to read their mind it's going to be quite embarrassing about how many times somebody has the cranberries or Mr. Biggs to be with you or Richard Marks in their mind over and uh, over and over again. You know, there's there's no more guilty pleasures anymore. And I'm sure um, I'm sure we've done our part to help out those artists from the 70s get more recognition. Okay, just before we go, because of all the stuff we've talked about, one last thing you just raised, which I think I, I, I ignored, I, did, I wasn't thinking about, but you've just maybe hit on the biggest thing of all. There was a time back in the 70s and 80s when this stuff was decidedly uncool when listening to music required you to crank up the ghetto blaster so every person around you heard exactly what it was you were playing and there was a a cool factor in making sure you played something that everyone around was going to go, oh man, he's really into good music. Now you could go through your entire day listening to music 24 hours a day without anyone outside of your own ears knowing what you're listening to. That gives you license to listen to the stuff you like rather than what's going to give you street cred. Yeah, yeah, or on Spotify, sure. have the ability to share what you want. But I got to tell you though, I'd been around enough hip-hop DJs and enough hip-hop artists. When I took them around town in Toronto to do media and stopped off at HMV or Sam the Record Man, they weren't buying other hip-hop albums. They were buying Hall and & Oates and Barry Mallow and the Alan Parsons Project because they would use those samples for their projects. They would use the soft drum 
for their songs. They would use the keyboard, the flourishing, you know, light, easy rock sound for their own music. They might have turned it upside down, but yes, it, it was... I'm waiting to hear Drake sample Copacabana in oh, his next... <laughs> it, it, he probably has, and you just don't even know about it yet. That is Eric Alper. Uh, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, man. We'll talk soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.